Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you just joined us, uh, I hope you're having a great spring break. As I mentioned earlier, I know some folks are on the road. Some folks have reached their final destination, and some folks just don't even have spring break on their radar, uh, which I totally understand. We, uh, however, have three elementary-aged uh, kiddos, and so spring break is definitely a thing for, for the Brummett family. And uh, right now, we are actually uh, coming to you live from a camp just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. It's in a, a city called Crystal Springs, Mississippi. And if, like me, you were a child of the 80s, and, and I heard Stacy say Camp Crystal Springs, uh, you can appreciate my, my uh, apprehension at that. Okay, so, uh, but as it turns out, the camp's beautiful, it's peaceful. Uh, it's, it's just really a blessing. No psychos, nothing like that. So a real sweet family. In fact, the, the, the camp is run by a Christian family. We did not know this. Uh, the whole reason that, that they have this camp that they bought it several years ago is so, so that people would have an opportunity to encounter Jesus, to have an encounter with Jesus and experience spiritual rest. It, it, it says that on their the the little guide you get when you when you uh, come to the to the uh, to the cabin. It says that on their website. That's that's why they have this camp. And underneath the logo on their homepage, it literally says very simply, "Persevering in Jesus's name." Uh, so it was fun to uh, just kind of happen upon them. And, and it's no accident that we, we ended up here this weekend. Stacy was on VRBO uh, rentals of all things, and she was looking at places in three different states, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And she was trying to find a place for us to just kind of take a couple days to unwind. It's been a busy season uh, for the Brummett family and, and just really find a place to rest for a few days. And we we're thinking just kind of in terms of the cessation of activities, just get some physical rest uh, spend some time outdoors. And so God brought us here to this specific place very intentionally to remind us of three important things. And and from even before we got here, from looking at their website, from talking to the family. And those three things are that God is calling us to persevere, persevering in Jesus's name. Secondly, that God is providing for us as we persevere. He doesn't just... Um, what is it called in politics? An unfunded mandate. He doesn't just say, I want you to persevere and then and then not come along and provide what you need to do it. And then thirdly, that true rest is only found in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, we could talk about other kind of rest, um, but usually that's that's not exactly what the Bible has in mind in, in, in terms of true rest. That's only found in Christ. Now, you can find it in Christ in a lot of different circumstances, but that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So what is true rest? Okay, this is something that we all wrestle with, particularly in our culture, I think. Uh, it's the million-dollar question for many of us. And I'll be the first one to admit that I struggle to understand the biblical meaning and purpose of rest, biblically speaking. And thanks, th thankfully, that's exactly what today's passage is going to go into. So if you don't already have one, go ahead and grab a Bible and flip over to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at the bulk of Hebrews 4 this morning. Again, if you're driving, Will, don't you don't have to flip in your Bible, okay? It's, it's cool. You can just uh, listen, all right? Um, 
the big idea for today is simply this, all right? This is something that whether you're an adult or a child, that this can resonate with you. You can understand this. The big idea is simply this, that God promises rest to his people, but we must pursue it. And we're going to dig into this, but God promises rest for his people, but we as his people must pursue it. And as we dive in, we're going to look at both sides of that statement. We're going to look at God's promise of rest on the one hand, and then on the other hand, with the latter part of our passage, we're going to look at our pursuit of rest as God's people and what our role is in acquiring rest. So first, we need to understand that rest is absolutely promised by God. Look at verses 1 through 10 in our passage, Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. So here we see three aspects of God's promised rest. We see the condition for rest, the one and only condition. We see the creation of rest. And then we see the continuation of rest. When God came up with this whole rest idea in the first place, or at least created a context for it, and then how it continues today. Condition, creation, continuation. Let's look at that in verses 1 through 10. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we clearly see the condition for rest. Now, try to pick it out as I reread these verses, okay? What is the one condition for rest? Starting in verse 1, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, talking about that uh, first generation uh, that came out of Egypt, the first generation of the Exodus in ancient Israel. He says, for we indeed have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. So according to this passage, the one and only condition for entering God's rest is that we believe God. Specifically, we must believe God's promises, uh, trust in God's promises, and believe that he can and will fulfill his promises, that he will make good on his word. And today... In in our context, uh, on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that means believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is himself the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises, including God's promised rest. However, the the good news in verse 2 probably doesn't refer to the, the gospel in a technical sense. Uh, what we see, for instance, in, in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15, this, this technical sense of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But rather, in the context here, it, it's, it's probably in the sense of the promise of entering God's rest. That's what he's talking about in this context. So that's the good news. The good news is, hey, rest is available. God wants you to enter into his rest. And of course, we today in the church enter into his rest through none other than faith in Jesus Christ. That Exodus generation, they they also received good news, the good news of entering God's rest, specifically in their context, in the the land of Canaan, the, the promised land. But they failed to meet the one and only condition for entering that rest. 
They, they failed to trust that God could make good on his promise to provide them with rest in that place. And so they never entered that rest. Do you remember at, at uh, Kadesh Barnea, the spies go in and of, of all 12 spies, it's, it's Joshua and Caleb that come back saying, yes, there are giants in the land. That's true. There are people in the land, the Canaanites, and some of them are giants. But what does he say? They say, they say, but that's okay. God's promised us rest. He, he can take care of that. He can provide for us. And do you know that that generation of Israelites wanted to stone them to death and, and find another leader and go back to Egypt? All right. So they, they were decidedly not trusting in God's ability to fulfill his promises to them. All right. But the author of Hebrews tells us that a promise of rest remains even after that debacle uh, some 3,500 years ago, a promise of rest remains. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, he rose again from the dead, he conquered sin and death, he made a way for you and I to be reconciled to God the Father uh, and, and have eternal life and be adopted into the, the family of God as his sons and daughters. Uh, that good news of Jesus Christ Part of that is that it promises rest for the believer. And according to verse 3 in our passage, believers, they enter God's rest. Remember, it's we who have believed enter that rest. Whether that happens in the present, uh, in in the sense of a spiritual rest, while we are sojourners and pilgrims in this life, in this world, uh, or in the future, in, in a consummation of rest, or both. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today because that's one of the the complexities of this passage that people kind of differ at times on how to interpret rest. Is it in the present? Is it in the future? Or is it both? So we're going to talk about that. All right. The next point that we see in these verses, in verses three to five, is that we see that uh, that rest was created. We see the the, the creation of it, the, the conception of it. So let's look at verses three through five. The author writes, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he he says this interesting thing. Although his, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. So so they're not going to enter his rest. It's not that the rest wasn't there to be entered into because his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he's going to clarify that in verse four and five. Verse four, for he, God, has said somewhere, it's not that he didn't know where this was, they they all knew, his audience, okay? So he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and then he quotes from uh, Genesis. Uh, and it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then verse five, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So what he's showing you is that that uh, so many thousands of years later, the Israelites couldn't enter God's rest, which remember he says, my rest, it belongs to God. But then he goes back all the way to Genesis uh, chapter two to show us that, that God's rest has been there since the very beginning. So we see that this rest began in the beginning, that first, the, the week of creation that we see in Genesis one and two. And rest was, was part of God's original plan for humanity. We, we can't miss this, okay, because we see God's God's purpose, God's intentionality here, that part of the original plan for man and woman and their descendants 
was rest, was to enjoy true rest. And Eden, the garden, paradise, that was our original resting place. That's where that uh, our, our first parents could enjoy, could live in God's glorious presence, to worship him and to enjoy his blessings. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. A resting place is a place where you can be in the presence of God as his people in relationship with him and you can worship him for his glory and you can enjoy all of his incredible blessings for his glory. All right. And that's what Eden was. Uh, In Genesis 2, God creates the man and the woman to worship him and to enjoy his blessings. And folks, the only condition for remaining in his rest was what? It was, it was a belief in him, a belief in his promises, a trust leading to obedience. Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17 with me, and I'll read it. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Uh, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Do you see his provision? Do you see the blessings? From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You will surely lose this this resting place and this rest that you have in my presence. Because God can't abide with sin. So God rested, it tells us, on the seventh day, and he invited Adam and Eve to share in his rest. And interestingly, this day of rest has no evening. It breaks the pattern of days one through six in creation. Morning and evening, the first day. Morning and evening, the second day. You get to the seventh day, it's open-ended. It doesn't end. And so some Jewish scholars and Christian scholars alike have understood this to anticipate an eternal day of Sabbath rest, uh, which is to be inaugurated at the kingdom of the Messiah, when Messiah returns to establish his earthly kingdom, and then on into eternity beyond that. All right, third point here. In verses 6 through 10, we don't just see that God created rest and he kind of scrapped it as a bad idea. We see the continuation of God's rest. Starting in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Because of disobedience. That's disobedience coming out of unbelief, which Kevin talked about last week. And then verse 7, He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And and he quotes from Psalm 95, and he attributes that to David here. And he says, uh, after so long a time, hundreds of years after that exodus, through David, he says, uh, as before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua, that's the one who took over after Moses, for if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. You got to understand that his audience knew their Hebrew Bible. And Joshua eventually did bring in that second generation into Israel. And it is said at different points that they, that God rested them. But do you remember the story of judges and then on into the the, the monarchy, the kingdom? 
they were constantly losing the rest. It was never permanent. It was always temporary, and disobedience always uh, destroyed rest for them, okay? So he points that out. He knows they're going to go, but wait a minute. Uh, it says that Joshua gave them rest. Okay, right. Joshua, ha- if he had given them permanent rest uh, to enjoy, then then David wouldn't have spoken of another day after that. And then in verse 9, he, he comes to the conclusion, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's not a done deal. It's not over. It remains. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. That's this idea of rest as a cessation of of works. And so God's rest was originally created for Adam and Eve, but they disobeyed. They had to leave the garden. And then his rest was offered to Israel through Moses and Joshua, but they disobeyed uh, both before and after entering the promised land. And then his rest was once again offered to Israel hundreds of years later during the kingdom under King David. But the nation's disobedience led to ultimately their exile from the promised land. They had to leave that that place of rest and go into Babylon. And in Hebrews, the author uses David's inspired words to once again offer God's rest to first century Christians through Jesus, who is the greater son of David. And by the way, whose Hebrew name happens to be Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of, of Joshua. Uh, referring to God's salvation. And, and the word of God continues offering us rest today, even now in the 21st century, to believers. And, and this is made clear in verse 9. It says there remains, even to this day, folks, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But now the next verse raises a really interesting question. What what are the works that must cease in order for us to enter God's rest? Think about that. And really, there's two ways to interpret verse 10. Some people believe, and this gets back to what I was saying earlier about, is rest now? Is it a spiritual rest that we have in Christ that we experience right now? Is rest a future rest that's being referred to? Or is it both in some sense? Okay. So some people believe that the rest in view here in verse 10 is, uh, and really in other parts of this passage, is a spiritual rest that we can enter into today through faith in Jesus Christ. And they would see, and of course this is in alignment with Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where Christ says, come to me, I will give you rest. Um, and they would see resting from works in a, in a negative sense as, as ceasing our efforts to earn our salvation. The idea of works-based uh, salvation or works-based righteousness. So now that we have Christ, we trust in him, we can, we can cease those works to try and earn our own salvation and, um, and instead rest in the finished work of Christ that, that he once and for all paid for our sin reconciled us to God. So that's one way people read this. And then others understand this rest as a as a future reality that we will enter into uh, when we have accomplished the, the good works that God has given us to do in this life. And to me, that seems uh, very reasonable given the context because uh, our works are associated with God's works. The, the creative works of God in our works that he ceased and that we cease uh, are associated. And so to me, it makes sense that you would take that in a positive light, not a negative light. Okay. And I don't want to get into all the intricacies and you can always flag me down. If, if you have questions, we can talk more and 
over a cup of coffee on this stuff. But uh, to me, that seems reasonable. The concept of rest, and by the way, I'm not saying there's not spiritual rest that's available today in Christ. I absolutely believe that. And that's one of the points today. But we're, we're looking at what that means in the context in verse 10. So the concept of rest in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 seems to be uh, multifaceted. It has different facets to it, just like a lot of things in our Christian beliefs uh, uh, are multifaceted. In, in one sense, we can experience rest right now by trusting in the one who is who is already resting, i.e. seated at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, this is a point the author of Hebrews is going to make. He's, 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 he himself is resting. His work is finished. Remember, he said from the cross, it is finished. And he said in John, I've done all the works that, that the Father has, has sent for me to do. I've obeyed perfectly. Okay? So, yes, th- there is a sense of, of spiritual rest that we can gain through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, and really by being seated with him, spiritually speaking through our faith, being seated with him at the right hand of the Father. All right. Now, in another sense, we do look forward to entering into God's rest when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. Folks, one day we will be glorified as Christ is glorified. One day we will be uh, inhabiting resurrected bodies that don't succumb to death and sickness and disease and and fatigue and in that sense, we will experience a kind of rest that we've never experienced before, a consummation of God's promised rest in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to summarize that, God promises rest to anyone who believes in his son. As we trust in Christ, we can experience spiritual rest in this life. We can come to Jesus and find rest for our souls. But we still look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised rest that awaits us at the end of this earthly life after we have faithfully finished the good works that God has set out for us to do from the beginning of time. Uh, We at our house back in Austin, we have a bird that's building this beautiful nest uh, at our house. The only problem is where the bird has chosen to build its nest. And I think we have a photo. Martin, were we able to get that photo up? I got to change my screen here to make sure. Ah, there it yeah, is. It. Okay. Uh, take a look at that photo. And, and kids, uh, it's like a Where's Waldo. Can you see the nest here? All right. That's the problem. It's a beautiful nest. It's, it's, it's taken forever for this bird to build it. Uh, but the location is problematic. So, Sadly, this industrious little bird has built its intricate little home, its little nest, in a seasonal winter wreath hanging on our front door of our home. And and as much as we hate to do it, we're going to have to remove that nest when we remove the wreath. Uh, If it was a springtime arrangement, then the bird would probably have plenty of time to settle down, raise a little bird family, and, uh, and, and hang out on our front door for a little while longer. But the moral of the story is this. Don't try to make a, a temporary space into a permanent resting place. Don't try to make what is temporary in terms of a space into a permanent place of rest. And that holds true for birds. That holds true for believers as well. God has promised us rest, but we should not anticipate its ultimate fulfillment in this life. 
Today, we are called to believe in God's promise of rest as we work hard in his strength that he supplies and look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised rest in the world to come. So consider your own life this morning. How might you be nesting in this temporary life on earth? It is true that we can and should, as I mentioned earlier, experience spiritual rest through faith in Christ. I'm not saying that goes back to God providing for us in this life. He he does provide us a source of rest through the Holy Spirit who lives within us through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we need to set aside time in this life to cease our striving and to have an encounter with Jesus, as the camp website here in Mississippi says. But the rest that we receive from Christ doesn't lead to an escape from ministry and ministry responsibilities. It's the very thing that empowers us to persevere in the ministry that God has called us to, that Christ has called us to. We keep running the race. We don't stop. We don't pull over to the side. We keep running the race by keeping our eye on the ultimate prize, which is the promise of of entering God's rest once and for all. So let's rest in our Lord so that we don't try to nest in this life, which can only lead to frustration and unmet expectations. The first thing we learn in today's passage is that God has promised to provide us with rest, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. And that's what we're going to move to next. Rest must be pursued by God's people. And, it, and that's that's part of faith. That's part of trusting that he is supplying us with rest is that we pursue the rest that he is 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 promising to us. Uh, and, and this probably sounds counterintuitive counterintuitive to say that rest is is ultimately the the result or the end point of hard work. Um, but that's exactly what we see in verses eleven through thirteen. First of all, we see that rest requires diligence, hard work, effort, striving. Look at verse 11. It says, the author writes, Therefore, let us, and I'll I'll go into this in a different sermon, but just know that um, when he speaks uh, in first-person plural, we and us, uh, that's that's a huge signal in uh, the letters to the Hebrews. But the point is, he's including himself here. He's saying, we, the church, all right? So he says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall, and he switches to the individual, so that no one will fall through following that same example of disobedience that we saw with the Exodus generation. And and some translations, I don't know what you're using, but it might say, uh, instead of let us be diligent to enter that rest, it might say let us strive or let us make every effort to enter that rest. Again, it's, it's, uh, this seems to place rest in the future as something to be received at the end of a faithful life of perseverance, uh, of obedience and persevering in Jesus' name. In other words, we know that we will receive rest, so we need to be diligent in accomplishing the works of God today in this life, regardless of how hard it is. And it is a struggle, as you all know but we have to keep persevering. So once again, we see the possibility of falling through disobedience. And this is going to be a theme throughout the warning passages in Hebrews. This this falling or falling away, we see that again here. Uh, And it's through disobedience. 
And just like Kevin mentioned last week, disobedience is the fruit, but the root is unbelief in God. It's that leads to a hardness of heart. And that's always going to produce disobedience because we don't trust him. Okay. Um, and and this, this, this falling through disobedience, this really raises some important questions that we're, we're going to wrestle with throughout this entire, uh, letter to the Hebrews. Um, who is in danger of falling? Uh, well, the author seems to be addressing believers. These are the holy brethren, the brethren, the partakers of a heavenly calling who he's referencing, okay? So it seems like believers are in danger of falling. So then what would it mean for a believer to fall? Well, this gets into that loss of salvation question. Uh, the tendency for some people is to see loss of salvation here, uh, apostasy in terms of having you know, salvation and walking away and losing your salvation. Um, but, but I would disagree. And, and our church doesn't hold to the idea that you can lose your salvation once you're saved. Given the context of what's going on here, the fall seems to be connected to the disobedient Israelites falling in the wilderness. You remember either last week or the week before that their bodies fell in the wilderness. Okay, so there's a there's a word connection here between their bodies falling in discipline because of disobedience uh, in the wilderness and then anyone falling here through disobedience. Uh, And that could point to uh, not a loss of salvation, but to a loss of inheritance. They were supposed to inherit the land and inherit God's promised rest, but that generation was never able to enter. They, They faced both current, present discipline by God uh, leading even to their death in the wilderness, including even Moses, uh, and then a loss of of that potential for the future, that inheritance that they were promised, okay? So, um, all right, enough of that. We're going to talk more about that in weeks ahead. Uh, but rest also requires deference. Now, that I like that word because uh, I think it, it fits here, but deference is deferring. It's... it's um, it's, it's trusting in God, okay? You defer to his authority. You defer to his wisdom, all right? We will never persevere in this life uh, as Christians, it called to Christian ministry, unless we are willing to defer to the authority of God's word. And so that's what we see in verses 12 and 13. Uh, look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to reread them quickly. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's the NASB version. Uh, And there is a lot of scholarly debate as to whether the word of God here refers to the written word, uh, God's revelation through scripture, or whether it refers to to the the living word, uh, the the word that we see in John's prologue, uh, Jesus, or to both the written word and the living word. And and honestly, it's hard to say. And there are really good arguments on both sides of this. I think the the ladies have certainly talked about this in their uh, in their study. I, I know, but I'm gonna kind of sidestep that argument by pointing out something, some things that that apply to both the living word and the written word. To, 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 which, by the way, we know Jesus through 
the, the written word. The written word is what presents us with the truth about the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's what tells us the gospel, all right? Okay, so I'm going to kind of sidestep that, and these, these really do apply to both, all right? So first of all, we must defer to the authority of God's revelation, the ultimate revelation being God's Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son that he sent in as the apostle, the sent one, as his representative. Uh, but we learn about the person and work of Christ, as I said, through the authoritative words of Scripture. So first, we must defer to the authority of God's revelation. Second, the word of God is meant to help us. Um, it's likened here to an implement of war, a double-edged Roman sword uh, that, that can cut into us and expose the, the sinful thoughts and intentions of our heart. And in that sense, it's, it's, a, bit, uh, it's a bit scary. It's not a bit, it's really scary. Um, however, for a follower of Jesus Christ, for God's people, think about the metaphor of surgery, all right? Think about this sharp, double-edged knife uh, used for, for good, for our benefit, okay? It's, it's um, when it exposes our thoughts, our sinful thoughts and intentions of our heart, it, it gives us an opportunity to keep our heart from hardening and eventually leading us into disbelief and disobedience. When it does uh, give us an awareness of our sin, the idols in our life, then we have an opportunity to confess and repent and be healed of it. First uh, John 1, 9, Elias and I are memorizing that right now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise of God. All right, when we defer to the word of God, it will heal and transform us and further sanctify us for this life of perseverance. Third, the word of God will be the standard by which we are judged. Now, we, we have to understand this. As believers, Jesus, our, our high priest, sits at the right hand of God, and he is eternally interceding for us before the Father, okay, such that we will never face condemnation. He's always there to say, their sins are paid for, okay? So we're not going to face God's condemn, condemning judgment, okay? Uh, however, and this is so important for us as believers to understand, every single one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for whether we're condemned. That's a separate judgment. That's the great white throne judgment at the end of the book of Revelation, but in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans 14, over and over again, we see the promise that we will, as followers of Jesus Christ, as God's people, stand before the, 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 the Bema seat in Corinthians, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, for our lives to be assessed in light of our deeds, okay? Uh, l- listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. He says, Therefore, We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Whether we're dead or with him in heaven, we want to be pleasing to Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says this in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, not for whether we're going to be eternally separated from God or not, but he goes on to say, So that each one may be recompensed or rewarded, for his deeds in the body, in this life, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Uh, and I won't read the other passages, but you can go to 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 and others. So in order to faithfully persevere in our pursuit of God's rest, we have to help each other remain diligent and we must all defer to the authoritative word of God. And folks, if we can help each other remain diligent and we can defer to the authority of God's word individually and together as the church, then there's no doubt that that is going to be a joyous occasion at the judgment seat of Christ, okay? And there are eternal rewards prepared for us. That's a beautiful thing. I recently learned, uh, I don't know anything about cycling, so I'm going to embarrass myself probably, but I recently learned about this uh, particular strategy that's used by teams in the Tour de France. Uh, I'm going to be texting. The Tour de France, okay? Not France. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but but it's called a lead-out train is the strategy. And so one of the team members, not the leader, sprints out ahead and allows the team leader, whom they want to win, who they think is going to win, to follow behind in what's called their slipstream. Uh, you can do this with cars as well. But it's it's um, the slipstream removes the, the, the uh, force of the air that's pushing against you because the person ahead of you is creating a slipstream where, where you're not being slowed down by the air. And that allows the leader to conserve energy for the next you know, leg of the race or whatever. It's sort of like uh, resting, for, for the leader anyway, uh, in the middle of a highly competitive 2,000-mile race through various countries on bike, all right, that lasts a long time. But finding rest in a slipstream is very different from the restfulness that's found at the finish line when the race is over and you receive the prize. And the same is true in our Christian lives. We can help one another find spiritual rest in Christ, but we do this so so that we can persevere in our pursuit of the ultimate fulfillment of God's promised rest. We can't build a nest in this life, okay? This is not, this is the temporary place. This is the front door uh, seasonal wreath, okay? And yet we can still help one another experience uh, rest by pointing one another to Christ and by sort of providing that slipstream like we saw in the Tour de France. Uh, Tour de France team has to know not just how to provide rest to one another and how to work together as a team, but they also have to know the route. And I think the route changes every year for the Tour de France. Um, it goes through different mountain passes, through different countries, all sorts of stuff. So. If you're gonna if you're gonna race successfully in the Tour de France, you have to know the route, you have to know the rules, so that you don't get off track or, or disqualified. And in the same way, we can only pursue the promise of God's rests if we are willing to defer to the authority of God's word. That's how we know the route that God has for us, His ways. That's how we know uh, what the rules are of the race, so that we don't get disqualified. And our application here is simple. Let's let's race well together. We're going to get to this later in Hebrews, where he actually uses the the um, the analogy of of a race and running a race well. So so let's run this race well together. Let's help each other stay focused on Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who who has finished, has completed everything that God the Father gave to him to do. It's it's finished. His, he we enter into that finished work of Christ. He has God's rest, and we can enter into God's rest through faith in him. And let's help each other set aside time to pray and to remember our dependence. 
folks, we have to. This is one of the reasons we try to do like the planning retreat in January uh, getaways. It's why at the men's getaway, we're going to set aside several hours so our guys can spend some extended time with God out in this beautiful piece of property. But the fact is we have to remind each other to do that or else we're not going to be able to persevere. So let's exhort one another also with God's word uh, and help each other defer to his authority in our lives. And, and if we do that, we will persevere by God's grace and, and the, the strength that the Holy Spirit provides us. Rest isn't found in a good book or on a comfy couch uh, with a good Netflix show on. It's not found at the, at the bottom of a cup of good coffee or the, the bottom of a bottle of beer or a glass of wine. It's not even found in silence and solitude and getting out to nature. Rest isn't found it doesn't come from a place like I'm standing in today, this beautiful piney retreat in, in uh, Mississippi. Rest is found in, in only one place, and that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and in our prayers of dependence upon him, we rest at his feet. And one day we will enter into an everlasting, fully consummated rest in his kingdom. In the meantime, worship Jesus with a grateful heart. When you when you get to the end of a good book, or, or when you spend time catching up with a friend over coffee, or have a, a share a nice meal together, or get out for a men's getaway or a retreat in the woods, use those as opportunities to worship Jesus with a grateful heart, to enjoy his blessings in this life, but also bring your Bible along on that morning of solitude. Whether you're weary or well-rested, busy or by yourself, being inadvertently active or intentionally reflective and finding solitude, make every moment count by keeping Christ at the center of it all. In doing so, you and I will find rest in this life and an even greater rest in the life to come. Uh, Next week, Martin is going to take us through one of my favorite passages in Hebrews. He's going to tell us why we need to draw near to God and how Jesus Christ has made that possible. Let's pray.